scripture, or the sermon text rather, is Malachi chapter 3 verses 13 through 18, what should be second to last sermon in the book of Malachi. We'll take a break from Romans next week. Dave Chilton, the RHM, will be in the pulpit in the morning, helping me on Presbytery Week, so I'm grateful for that. He'll also be presenting his work in Sunday school. I hope people will come to that. The RHM, Regional Home Missionary, I won't explain now what that is, uh, but I will be in the pulpit in the evening and hoping to finish uh, Malachi then. Uh, But hear now the word of God, Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord, yet you say... What have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another as the Lord listened, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who fear the Lord and those who meditate on his name, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day that I make them my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for the reading of scripture and we thank you for the burden of the prophet Malachi, a burden which uh, you have burdened us with as well. And, and we wish, O oh Lord Jesus, to come to you and to carry your burden, not that of the world, but yours, which is light and easy by comparison. It isn't really light and easy. It's, it's very heavy, but it's, it's, it's delightful to carry this burden. I, I think that's what you meant. And, and by experience, we, we know that it's, it's a heavy burden. It's a cross even. But how delightful it is to, to live our lives in the service of you. And Malachi knew that. And we wish to know that uh, evermore as we, as we hear now another sermon on this great book. Amen. Well, we've had a series of rebukes uh, with a little bit of hope uh, in between. And we're going to end on a note of hope. A forward look to the new covenant, but this is now the final rebuke. I think the fifth, if my count is correct, and I almost entitled this the fifth rebuke, uh, but I decided God's book of remembrance was a better title. The final rebuke before in chapter four, which is a short chapter, and I think I can do it in one sermon, uh, six verses before he looks forward in that chapter to the coming day of the Lord, which he looked forward as well uh, to in uh, the first part of chapter three. What we find here, and you remember the book opens, and I was just praying this, that the prophet was sorely burdened. He was burdened with uh, the word of the Lord that he must preach, but he was also sorely burdened by the sins of the people, and in particular the sins of the people who should have known better, that is, the people of God, the church in those days. Uh, of course, this is something which is nothing new. If you read the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, uh, this is a sad refrain you will find throughout the message of the prophets. It isn't surprising then to find that the last prophet ends on this note and then the last prophet of the Old Covenant, John the Baptist, who comes after Malachi, preaches the same message. 
But still, it's sad to see, and it's something we ought to recognize, or at least feel the weight of, it's sad to see that the Old Covenant ends like this, with the people of God and the church in those days in such a sad state of declension. That is to say, decline in religion. But this, at the same time, very helpfully underscores the need for a new covenant and the coming of the Lord to set things right, which is, once again, what will become the final note in chapter 4. And as you just turn the page over and you read in Matthew chapter 1 of the coming of Christ, if you were to read your Bibles consecutively, uh, the stage really is set to begin to rejoice at the beginning of a new covenant. So here is the fifth burden. And what is said here, as can be said uh, last time, uh, can be here divided into two things, uh, two burdens in one. Matthew Henry describes it like this. Among the Jews at this time, there were men of very different characters, as ever were and ever will be in the world and in the church, some very good and some very bad, some that plainly appeared to be the children of God, and others that as plainly discovered themselves to be the children of the wicked one. There are tares and wheat in the same field, chaff in the same floor. And here we have an account of both. Now that's very helpful because uh, I think it reminds us of two things. One is that while there were many wicked in those days as ever, this was a very let's just say, sad day in the life of the church in Malachi's day, there was also some good. And it's well that we remember that in days that are evil, such as Malachi's day. Let us never forget that for as bad as things become, and as full as even the church is at times of wickedness, there are still some who serve God. And that's something we need to be reminded of often. The fact that the field is not sown all of tares, but that there is some wheat. Yes, maybe some, but still some. And so things, even in the darkest days, are not as bad, perhaps, as we fear. That's a message I think the church needs to hear. It's a message I need to hear. It's easy to become bleak and discouraged in days like these. But the second thing, which we sometimes also forget, is how the church... Even the best churches, and you see this is the other side of the coin, are a mixture of good and bad. For as good as the good churches are in this life, they are never perfect. Evil is ever and always sown among the wheat. This is unavoidable, and it's something which Jesus tells us in one of his parables, which we read, that is the will of God. It may be something that we don't particularly particularly like and in fact I think we could call it a burden something which burdens the righteous that they must ever dwell even in the church amongst tares and weeds but here it is in the Bible it will always be like this in this world and Matthew Henry just said the same thing as ever were and ever will be in the world and in the church tares along with the weak the wheat And so the righteous must ever strive with the wicked, even in the church. And the remedy for this, the unburdening of the people of God, is stated in this text. But it will not be found in this life. Now the way to divide this passage is like this. As uh, Matthew Henry said, an accounting of both the wheat and the tares, the wicked and the righteous. 
First, by considering, according to the order of the text, the wicked and God's account of them and then the righteous. Two simple points this sermon. Both, uh, both of them, both the wicked need to hear and the righteous at the same time need to hear what God thinks of them. What God makes of their ways. The accounting he makes of what they do. And especially what they say. God's account of our speech. We find here it's what the people were saying that God especially takes notice of. The speech of the wicked, the speech of the righteous. Perhaps in those days it was easier to believe that of the five crying uh, evils in Malachi's day, what people were saying was actually numbered among them. Perhaps it was easier to believe, I, I, I mean, because in those days... Uh, what people said uh, carried greater weight. More importance was attached to, attached to this, what I would call a high-integrity society, at least to a greater degree than our own. Great importance was attached to what people said. This is, of course, reflected in the third and the ninth commandment. Although even then, We see how the wicked made light of their words and how their wickedness appeared in this, their careless speech. Only today, I would say, things have grown much worse. It is common now even for the righteous to be careless in their words and in their speech. But against this, the Bible has much to say. Uh, Let's just call it careless speech. That's the sin we're talking about. John Owen, let me uh, commend this book again on Christian Fellowship which will be our next study in the men's breakfast. But really, I'm hoping it becomes a church-wide thing. And I'm hoping the ladies will do it as their next study, but you're free to do what you want. But I'm going to keep mentioning it in my sermons, I think. Uh, He says uh, in his book on Christian fellowship, his sixth rule uh, has to do with our speech. This is his sixth rule. Believers should engage in frequent spiritual conversation for edification according to the measure of their gifts. When Christians come together in fellowship, they should be concerned to speak words of life to one another. Edifying speech. Not just small talk, not just talking about the sports game or the political arena, but spiritual speech amongst spiritual persons. And then he gives what is, I think, a very helpful list of scriptural quotations in this regard, reminding us of our duty as Christians and our Christian fellowship to have speech which is seasoned with salt. And the first of these, uh, very happily fitting in with the sermon, comes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. And I'll just leave that there, because we'll come back to that under the second point. But there are, uh, there are many others that he gives. Let me give you the most striking from his list, and then add one of my own. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for uh, necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now, again, think uh, in each of these cases of what the apostle is exhorting us to do when we come together. Not evil speech, but righteous speech for edification, he says. Colossians chapter four, verse six. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. 
Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as, as is fitting for the saints, verse 4, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You should be full of thanksgiving, not uh, not silly talk, let's just call it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24, this is the final one. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Both those passages, Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 10, the same verb, exhort one another as you come together in order to stir one another up and spur us on in our pilgrimage to the heavenly city. And the one uh, that I would add is, well, what we already read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 through 37. I won't read the whole passage again. I'll just simply highlight a couple uh, places. He says, a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. But I say to you, that, uh, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That passage especially is a fitting summary or parallel to what Malachi is saying. The importance of words and the note which God takes of them. The importance, uh, let us see, that God attaches to our words. Perhaps we do not. Certainly that uh, is not the modern sensibility. Carelessness in speech is common, especially on the internet. But God attaches immense importance to every word, even the idle word. Uh, the idle word spoken in jest or, uh, or, or I, I said it, but I didn't mean it. God is taking notice. Because every word is an action. It is a deed. It is a work of which God takes notice and for which each of us will have to answer. An action we see, Jesus tells us, which reveals what is in the innermost heart. And Malachi tells us this as well. How do you know the wicked? How do you know the righteous? Listen to what they say. Our speech reveals who we are. And this is precisely what Malachi tells us first with regard to the wicked. The wicked speech of wicked persons. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. And remember, he's speaking to those in the church. And so it's sinful speech against God by members of the church in those days. And what God tells them is that what you say... Everything you say, I hear. But I especially want you to know that what you say against me, I hear. Every word. He remembers it when we have long forgotten. That's something we'll return to when we speak of God's book of remembrance. But what were they saying in particular against God? They were saying, as you see here in the text, that it was vain to serve God. That there was no profit in religion and observing his ordinances. That the, that the paths of the wicked were pleasant and good. And that the righteous were fools to forsake the paths of the wicked. Do not sinners, they said, fare better than the good. Than those who serve God. Than those who serve him at church. Who attend his ordinances. 
to do so likewise at home. For they imagined sinfully that God didn't notice or care what they said or what they did, and that it really didn't matter. And that, in fact, those on the other side, the wicked, who mocked and tempt God, go free. And because you, you see this in the last thing they say. They even tempt God and go free. They're talking about the wicked. They're envying them. They're wishing they could just go along with them. It really was in their minds and in their speech better to live life, a life which was free of any restraint placed upon us by religion or a concern to keep his ordinances since they imagined that God in heaven did not hear what we say or notice what we do or even care. Now that's not only what they thought in their hearts but what they said with their mouths. And as they said it, God was listening. Verses 14 and 15, it's useless to serve God. This is what they said. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinances, that we've walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. These are lies which Satan likes to tell the saints and which we are fools if we believe. What profit is there in serving God? And do not the wicked uh, fare better in this life? You see, he's been saying this from the beginning. It has a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? Ever since the beginning, what Satan has been doing is telling forth lies with his mouth. Sinful speech. If only he could get it to believe it ourselves. And then, what is worse, to tell the same tale to others. And yet we see that they were proud and bold in their speech, though they denied it. But when did the sinner ever admit his fault? Instead, he says, what have we spoken against you? Well, you see, they would excuse themselves and blame God instead for their woes. But God is not mocked. He sees and he notices and he remembers. Which means all along and all that we've been saying, let me say again, he takes account and his books are true. When, whenever they said this proudly, verses 14 and 15, though they would later pretend they never said it or perhaps they didn't mean it, God had already written it down in his book. His book of remembrance so that their words would not be forgotten by him. And later on, they would have to give an account for their words. Every idle word, every careless word, revealing what was really in the heart, just as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 37. And so what we have here is a picture of precisely what Jesus is describing in that verse. The Lord calling man to account for their careless and sinful speech, out of which, in the case of these men, their abundant contempt for God and his ordinances was put on display. But let me also notice, as I've noticed in the case of each of these sins, the way in which the church especially suffers by the sinful speech of the members of the church. How greatly, uh, let me say, the witness of the church is harmed when it is the very people who are attending the ordinances of God that are slighting them. And it is the very people who claim to be walking in the ways of righteousness who are 
uh, lamenting them and admiring instead the ways of the wicked. And it is bad enough that we should ever feel such things in our heart as though God were constraining us now and calling us to church on a Sunday night when we might be doing other things. Bad enough that we should ever feel such things, but to think that we would actually say them and thus become, in essence, evangelists of Satan rather than of Christ our Lord. That those who come to the house of God would be those who speak against it. Yes, that is another sad instance of declension in religion, religion in decline. For the name of God to be blasphemed by his own people. But alas, Malachi was burdened in this way and it ought to be a burden to us as well. We ought to be mindful of our speech. But on the other side of this, we notice that God comforts his people, those who spoke well of him, with the assurance that he has taken notice of their speech and that he will reward them. You see, both sides need to hear this. The wicked need to hear, I've noticed what you've said, but so too do the righteous. Because sometimes we think that perhaps our works really have no value at all. But God is saying, no, I value your words. I value it when you come and attend my ordinances. I value it when you come together in Christian assembly and speak words of life. The world may not notice, but I do. And so this is a word of comfort that the church needs to hear. How does he describe the godly? He describes the godly as those, first of all, who fear the Lord. Verse 16. A fear which was evident in that they did not say what the wicked said. Namely, they even tempt God and go free. That's the end of verse 15. In other words, the wicked can do whatever they want. God doesn't notice or care. And I really wish I could live as free of concern as they do. And that it was useless to serve God because he was in heaven and took no notice of our service. And so in reality, you really were better off sinning. Why deny yourself the pleasures of life when God is busy doing other things? Why trouble yourself with two, two services on a Sunday? Do you think the Lord of the universe really cares what you do? Whether you go to church or whether your life is a life of indulgence and sin. Now that's the speech of the wicked. I'm saying they didn't speak in that way. And in this their fear of the Lord was revealed. But but uh, speaking of the wicked. You see they, re- they revealed in this what they really wanted to do. Which was to sin. And it was only some vague notion that perhaps God might notice and punish them. That kept them from doing what they really wanted. Not because they really loved God. But the, but the righteous who truly fear God do better on two accounts. First, out of a true and honest fear of God, they fear to offend him. They know that he takes notice and he sees and he hears. And that he takes account. And that, yes, it would be foolish to tempt him by our sin. It isn't true that you tempt him and go free. That is nonsense. The man who tempts God does not go free. And the man who fears God knows that. But they also do better on a second account. And that is they do their duty. Forsaking the ways of sin and attending God and his ordinances. Out of a, out of a true desire to please him. Since that is what is best and what they really want. In other words... Let's say God told man 
that he wouldn't punish him for his sin. That man could punish, uh, that man could sin and still go free. The first class of people, the wicked, would have all the reason they ever wanted to sin. But the righteous still wouldn't. Because their real desire all along was to please him without any threat of punishment. Because they reverence and love the Lord. They think of him. They love to obey him. And yes, they speak of him often. Which is the second characteristic. Not only that they fear the Lord, but they speak of him. Him whom they love. Him whom they fear. And they speak to one another. Then those who fear the Lord spoke to one another. What a, what a fitting description of what it means to come together in, uh, in Christian assembly or Christian fellowship. Speaking not just to themselves or to God or to the world, but to one another. They came together as a church in order to speak words of life uh, to one another and in order to speak of the one whom they loved. They came together to use the Puritan phrase in Christian conference. It wasn't a social hour. It wasn't social club. But they come together to speak of him and to build each other up in their faith. Just exactly what each of those New Testament passages was about. Times of Christian assembly ought to be times like these. When the godly speak to one another and instill in each a fear of God. Now, this includes both speech in favor of God, his grace, his loveliness, his power, and awesome majesty. But it also includes, and certainly you get this sense from what we read in that list or that catalog of quotations from the New Testament. Speech in favor of God, but also speech against sin. If something is amiss in our brother or in our assembly, we ought to say something. It is our duty to speak against it. Not to remain silent because we are afraid of man. And too often we don't speak because we are controlled by the wrong fear. That is the fear of the wrong person. Not God, but man. But the righteous, because they fear God. In coming together to speak to one another. Are willing in Christian assembly to call out sin by name. And to exhort his brother to repentance. And such speech deserves to be called holy and edifying. Because it aims at the good of my brother. And at the good of the whole of our Christian fellowship. And so. Just as the wicked are known by their wicked speech. So we could also say of the godly that they are known in this life. But especially as they come together by their gracious speech and how eager they are and ready To speak to one another of the Lord they fear. And look what God says to them in their favor. Verses 17 and 18. First that he remembers. It is here that he speaks of his book of remembrance. By which he indicates that he hears and remembers all that is said for or against him. But he especially remembers the gracious speech of the godly. And he loves to remember it. A book of remembrance uh, in the ancient context, I don't think this sort of thing is done anymore. Maybe it is. It's something the kings of old would use. They would record the good deeds of the best saint, uh, not saints, citizens, in order to have those deeds read to them 
and then to reward uh, uh, reward uh, those who had done them, whose deeds were recorded. And that's what God is saying he does. He records the deeds and the words of the saints in order to reward them. Here is a token of his grace and favor and his intention to reward the godly, that he records their words in a book. That isn't something that ought to frighten you. It's something which ought to amaze you. That everything that you have done for his sake, though it is forgotten by this world, and perhaps even by you on the last day, I'm willing to bet that you will be like the person described in Matthew 25. Lord, when did we ever do that? Lord, when did we ever say that? Long forgotten even by you. He remembers. And he has recorded your best works in which he delighted. These things are remembered by the Lord, though forgotten by us. They shall not be forgotten, nor shall the Lord fail to reward them. Yes, and they shall be mine, says the Lord. On that day when I make them my jewels. So Malachi here looks forward and he invites us to look forward to the coming day of the Lord when the books are open and they are read. A day which we know and we can infer from the earlier verses will be a day of calamity and woe for the wicked when their assumptions that God never took account of anything they did or said or proved untrue. No, he did notice. He did remember. And he wrote it all down. But on the other side, a day of gladness and rejoicing for the righteous when God bestows his greatest favor upon the church, claiming her as his very own prized possession, his beloved, his precious jewels. They shall be mine, a treasure unto me, those whom I love dearly. Yes, and I will spare them, he says next, on the day of my wrath, the day when my wrath is poured upon the wicked, I will spare My precious jewels, for I delight to save them and to speak kindly and tenderly to them as they did of me. Even on the day when all my wrath and fury falls upon others. Here is a day when God's delight upon the church shall be well known. The saints, though they question it now, will know it for themselves that God delights in them. And how evident uh, then things will appear, verse 18, then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Then you will know, God says. Then things will appear as they really are, though they never quite did in this life. It will be easy, in other words, God is saying, to discern or to tell the difference between the righteous and the wicked, for God will separate them. He will cause the difference to appear. The righteous on his right, the wicked on his left. And what he says to each will be very different. God will make the difference apparent. He will speak kindly, he says, to to those who serve him in this life. And he will condemn and testify against the one who does not serve him. And so uh, the prophet here looks forward to the end, the ending of the burden, the great burden of the righteous in this life. No longer will they question whether God owns them as his own, for he will tell them. And no more will the wicked vex the righteous sown together in the same field, for he will separate them. And he will make it appear to us, though we might doubt it ourselves, that even the smallest tokens of our love to him 
as seen in our words, were greatly prized by him. And he will say, he being Jesus Christ himself, when he returns with his angels, coming to gather the church unto himself, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. I have noticed and I will reward you. And what a day that will be. A day only the godly can enjoy and look forward to. And we ought to. Though even for them we see there will be surprises in store. My message to you in closing is begin to look forward to it now and let it be known that you are looking forward to it by the gracious words of your mouth. Amen. And let us return thanks to our God now by standing and singing together. This is the last hymn of the month will be sung on capella.